our staff is putting out good vibes into the world. It sounds a little silly, but it's something that I truly believe in is that putting those thoughts into the universe and, and just, you know, at least doing something courteous and historic, asking somebody how they were or, you know, telling them to have a nice day, that they spread that mission. Welcome to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods, the nation's first podcast devoted to the business and lifestyle of the hospitality industry. Now, here's your host, Woolco Foods CEO, Stephen Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. I am your host, Stephen Toberoff, and today my guest is someone that I I'm very much looking forward to speaking with because a number of the uh, ideas that I've read about in researching this interview are are, are of interest to me and a lot of questions about scaling a business, growing a business. So let me just jump right into it with my guest, who's the founder and CEO of Sweetberry Bowls, Desi Saran. Desi, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today. Of course. Thanks so much for having me on. So Desi, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to get involved in the restaurant business? Yeah, I'm actually a, a Jersey guy. Grew up in Old Bridge, Central Jersey. And I went to uh, Rutgers undergrad and I went back to get my MBA in finance. And, you know, this is around probably my mid-20s. As I was going to get my MBA, started dabbling in entrepreneurship, started trying to start my own businesses. I had a couple of apparel businesses. I had an Amazon business, marketing, you name it. And then I kind of fell into a restaurant. At the time, I had a friend that, that was starting an acai concept down the Jersey Shore. He had called me up uh, as I was finishing my, my MBA program and I wasn't working. So I, I spent the summer down by him creating a new concept and we really didn't have any aspirations for the thing to grow. And before you know it, after three years, we had expanded all over the Jersey Shore. We had a dozen or so locations, and uh, it was it was really exciting. So after about three years of doing that, they him and his partner, there was three of us, they bought me out of the company, and I went on to found uh, my own company, which is uh, Sweetberry. And we're we're a healthy, fast, casual concept. We specialize in acai bowls, smoothies, wraps, poke bowls, uh, salads. And when I went to start the new company. There was a lot of excitement and a lot of my friends and family wanted to get involved, which they did. I had several people invest in the company and it was just really rapid growth from the beginning. You know, I have a question about that, but before I do, I'm, I'm just curious, were you into entrepreneurship as a kid? I've sort of been thinking about this a lot. I was talking about it with my son. There's some people that I've known in business who from a very young age, even when they were, you know, fifth grade, sixth grade, they had an entrepreneurial mindset. Others come to it later. What was it like for you? Were you into that before going to Rutgers or was this something that you sort of came to as, as you got more involved through your education and other endeavors? Yeah, it's, that's a really good question. People ask me the same kind of thing. Can you, like, you need to be born an entrepreneur. I think that's kind of where this question is heading, right? I don't think you need to be born it. Some people are. I don't think I was born an entrepreneur. I think you can learn it. I've certainly learned it, especially in my mid-20s. I can tell you when I was younger, though, I, I did have some entrepreneurial ventures. Actually, in, in middle school, I think, my friend and I started a, a business, believe it or not. We, we were selling uh, Dragon Ball Z videos. We were copying them, importing them from, from overseas, I think Japan, copying them, which was legal. And we were shipping them out in the mail and selling them on the internet. This was like when the internet first came out in the 90s. So 
we had our first business when I was like maybe 10 years old, 11, which is pretty, pretty cool. It is. I mean, it is an interesting question because I, I was not someone who was born with an entrepreneurial drive either. I'm someone that enjoys problem solving and, and thinking and, um, love a lot about business, but it was something that, you know, I found interesting because like you said, there's some people who from an early age are immediately transacting and, um, but I do think it's something you can learn. And I, I think it's something that can be improved on and taught. Now, one of the things I was reading about as I was researching this, and I was so impressed by, and I have a number of questions on is when you started Sweetberry Bowls, within one year, you opened up 12 locations my first question in that is, how did you design the infrastructure to enable such an accomplishment in one year? Coming off my, my previous company, right, I, I had franchised and scaled my first restaurant concept, and we opened a dozen or so locations in three years. So I, I had the infrastructure pretty much built where I knew how to scale restaurants. The new model that I built, Sweetberry, it was a kitchen-free. We don't have to install a kitchen. We don't cook anything. So it's pretty easy. For anybody that knows anything about opening restaurants, it's not easy. You have to get the real estate, sign the lease. Do well, that's what things. impressed me so much. And also the staffing. I mean, how do you properly staff, train, have management? So you're 100% right. Restaurants are super labor intensive and the level of execution in each individual location has to be exceptional. So uh, I didn't mean to cut you off, but you're absolutely right. There's a number of challenges uh, within this business. Yeah, we just, you know, I really put together high level SOPs or checklist. So like when we open a new location, there's probably over a hundred points on that checklist that we need to do in terms of securing the real estate, getting an attorney, signing a lease, construction, setting up utilities, hiring, right? All of that. So it wasn't just me. I had a team. And remember early on, I had people that invested in the company or partners and we opened locations out of state too. So actually our first location was in Florida, Fort Myers, Florida. So that was pretty interesting because I was remotely helping and I was flying back and forth. And then we opened our second one in Jersey. So, you know, with my team and my partners, we were able to replicate and do this simultaneously. It wasn't like we, we start one in January, then we start one in February, then we start one in March. There was a lot of work that we did on the back end to secure the real estate. And we had all of these locations coming up in our pipeline, right? And we were scheduling them out to open as fast as we could, obviously, because if you don't get it open in time, you start to pay your rent, right? And mm -hmm. you don't want to do that. And, and that happened because we had so much on our plate. Some of the projects got postponed a little bit or we lost time and there were a lot of mistakes that were made. I mean, in hindsight, I don't think uh, anybody in their right mind should <laughs> open that many restaurants that quickly. It was certainly a learning experience and, you know, it showed what we were capable of. It's an incredible accomplishment. Were these all corporate locations as well? Yeah, the first, the first batch, the first 12 were all corporate. That's very impressive. Do you have any thoughts or any opinions regarding both for Sweetberry Bowls and in general regarding franchising versus corporate ownership or an amalgam of both? Yeah, I mean, I'm always a big proponent of, of franchising. That's what we did with our original concept. And then with Sweetberry, as I built this, and, and the reason that we grew so fast was because I had a specific strategy. It was start the concept, open a bunch of corporate stores really quickly, which we did. We opened in our first year, that was 2019 or 2018 to 2019. And then right after that, once we had a slew of corporate owned stores, we could start attracting franchises. I love the franchise model because I think for a restaurant, that's the best way to scale, especially if you're out of state. I know from running 
corporate stores out of state, it, it's very difficult. Franchising, it's a whole different model. You're not running restaurants, you're not operating, you're in the game of teaching franchisees, you're giving them support every single day, and you're helping them run their business. It's completely different than running your, your own. So I think if I, were, if I were to do things backwards, I would have not been as heavy on the corporate. I would have focused on, on franchising solely, but it would have been a slower growth, I feel like. The strategy did work because after our first year, we registered to sell franchises and we started marketing and we, we generated probably well over 3,000 inquiries all over the U.S. Well, I would imagine the fact that you were able to open 12 corporate stores in 12 months must have given you enormous credibility in the space to say, look, this is what's possible. Because I think a lot of times, or contradict me if, if you disagree with what I'm saying, but I think a lot of times people may have concepts that are interesting and viable, but they try to franchise them after one or two. And I think that's a more challenging sort of sell than when you have 12 open. You can say to people, look, this is what's possible. This is what we've done. Yeah, I could, I could definitely agree with that. I mean, that was my specific plan to you know, only be open for a year, but generate a lot of interest. And, that, and that's what people bought into that. They said, you guys grew really fast. I want to become part of this growing thing. So that strategy worked. We generated a lot of franchise interest. I was very picky. You know, I've always taught to make sure that you pick your first franchisees very wisely. Out of 3,000 inquiries, I only awarded six or seven. So that percentage was really, really small because I knew early on that we had to pick the right, the right franchisees. I've seen other concepts fail because they kind of did what you said before. They only had one or two locations and they went and sold a million you know, units everywhere all over the U.S. And that's it's a recipe for disaster. That was another great thing about your strategy because the, the success and the ability to scale that you demonstrated gave you a, a, probably a much larger pool of applicants to choose from than someone who had not done that might have otherwise had to choose from. So you were able to really select the absolute best based on your criteria. Right, right. And, and that's always like something that you learn as you go on for people that are listening that want to franchise their business. Uh, it's re- <laughs> you could have your ideal franchisee in mind. You're rolling the dice. You know, the, the, the operators that you think are going to be the best are okay operators. And, and the operators that you think are going to be like the okay ones are, are your rock stars. So, and I've gotten that advice from, I have really good advisors that have been in the restaurant industry for a long time. And they've ran, you know, their concepts for about 20 years or so. And they, these are things that they tell me, pick your first ones very wisely. And you're always going to be wary because you don't know who's going to be good and who's, who's not. One of the things that I got out of researching this interview was the importance that you place on physical fitness as well as taking care of, of your mental health. And I completely agree with that. I did an interview several episodes ago with a professional bodybuilder who happens to be a friend of mine who trains a lot of CEOs and others in the business space. Can you talk to me a little bit about why specifically what are the the attributes or, or, or what are the benefits that make placing a priority on physical and mental fitness so important for a CEO or an entrepreneur or someone who's ready to take on a big challenge? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I, I learned the hard way, especially over the past four or five years with the way I <laughs> I, I operate my life and my business. Like we grew so fast and the way I run my business is it's grow, 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 hustle every day, work 12 hour days, 13 hour days. It's not sustainable. And it's something that we're kind of like taught by our society is if you want to become an entrepreneur, you have to work. And I truly believe that the one thing that can set you apart from anybody else is, is work ethic. And I attribute a lot of my success to my work ethic alone. But 
the opposite side of the spectrum there is that it can kill you. It can literally destroy you. And I've been in those situations where I've worked so much, I'm working myself to the ground, where again, it's not sustainable. I, I've sacrificed my my life, my friends, my family, my relationships for, for work. And for me, there's a long-term payoff, but in order to sustain what I'm doing, and I, I like to call it like to, to be like a high-performing business person or entrepreneur, you really have to take care of your body and your mind, just like professional athlete does. And I could say that, you know, I've fallen victim to not doing that, to not exercising, to not keeping myself physically fit or mentally sound. And there are consequences for that, right? So now I try to proactively make sure at least I'm exercising, you know, three or four times a week. I, I practice Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It's a passion of mine. I've been training that for about 10 years. More importantly, especially over the past three or four years, it's it's been my mental, you know, making sure that my mental capacity is in check and I'm, I'm healthy. All of us went through a really rough year last year. I did, you know, certainly. And, and a lot of people lost their shirts, lost their businesses. I, I think now more than ever, it's important that, that we really become aware of our mental health and, and make sure that we're, we're constantly keeping it healthy. Absolutely. I agree with so much of what you're saying. First of all, with respect to your comments on work ethic, I, I can relate. I've made the decision and I'm, I'm happy with it. You know, I've I've got my wife and my kids and a few close friends and hobbies, but I'm so obsessed with my business and getting the best out of it and, and being the best version of myself that you do have to sort of make some very tough choices at the beginning, at the middle, at the end, because at the end of the day, without consistent hard work and sacrifice, you can't achieve the objectives that you want, provided that they're you know, uh, significant, I don't want to say significantly high, but it's like anything else. If you want to achieve a certain level, there's a price to pay. And that's something that I, I share with people as well. You really have to love it because if you don't love it and you're not putting in the work that your competitors are, I think you're at a disadvantage. So I, I agree with you there, but there does have to be that balance. And with respect to what you were saying on the mental side of things, I completely agree with you. I would say one of the many positive blessings, miracles that's come out of this year is my own relationship with myself. In other words, I think that this year was unlike any other year as a, as a business and the challenges that we had to face. And thank God we were able to overcome them and use this as an opportunity to get even better. But it absolutely forced me to engage in a new level of self-awareness and self-discipline. And the mental game is everything. You know, another thing that I was reading as I was, I was getting ready for this, which I would like to have you elaborate on because I, I also share your views, is the importance of the leader of an organization having the right attitude and conveying the right energy. Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on that and the importance of that? Yeah, I, I think that's extremely important. I, I mean, that can affect your entire business, how your business operates, your staff. Um, that trickles down to management, right? And how management treats the employees and how employees treat customers. Our business, our, our company, Sweetberry, our, our mantra, our motto is, is superfood made with good vibes, right? And what that means is it's, it's not the good vibes aren't the ingredients. It's, it's the mantra that we want to put out there. When you come into our restaurants, you're not just getting food. Our staff is putting out good vibes into the world. It sounds a little silly, but it's something that I, I truly believe in is that putting those thoughts into the universe and, and just, you know, at least doing something courteous in the store, asking somebody how they were or, you know, telling them to have a nice day, that they spread that mission, right? So I think that like 
by me inputting how important that is into the mantra of the company and hoping hoping that that trickles down into the customers and to my staff, it, it creates kind of like a, like a ripple effect there. No doubt. There's nothing more important, in my opinion, in what I've observed in the hospitality industry than the energy of the establishment and the way that the staff treats the customers. It's more important than the food or anything. So I don't think it's a trivial thing. I think it's a, a, of elemental importance in the hospitality industry. Um, and, and that falls back on everything that we just talked about. As a leader, you need to have great mental state, uh, keep your physical condition up so you can operate, right? And if you don't, you're not performing well and you're, you get sick, you're tired, you're cranky. That trickles down into everything else. There are large ripple effects, like I said before, and there's consequences because of that. Absolutely. It's kind of it's kind of like having an inhuman job. People don't understand. Well, I think people now understand how hard it is to, to run a business and also to lead a company. If you have a lot of staff, it's it's you know you're always on call, especially if you're in retail and restaurant. Our restaurants are open 8 a.m. to 8, 9, 10 p.m. daily, seven days a week. Right. So I'm always on call. I'm people are always calling me my franchisees, staff, employees. So I'm kind of used to it now. But like that means I have to be on point every day. I need to be able to think. And, and like you said before, problem solve. To me, being an entrepreneur and running a business is, is just really being a very, very good problem solver. Because every day something new is going to happen. Then you have to figure it out yourself because where else are the problems going to go to? They're all going to roll up to you. And over the past year, <laughs> we've never seen bigger problems, right? I like to use the analogy that last year was just like, you know, gigantic fire. Literally everything was on fire. The people that survived, the smart entrepreneurs, the smart business people, they were able to kind of like manage and put out the fires, right? And put your bandwidth to, to where you needed to be. And that's what we had to do last year. 100%. And to do that, you have to absolutely take control of your mind because the mind, if left uncontrolled, is is not a helpful tool. It can be a very powerful adversary, but the mind controlled can be the most powerful thing you have. And for sure, exercise and and diet. One of the trends, and I discussed this with Dane and you read about it now, you have athletes that are training or, or thinking and behaving like CEOs and you have CEOs that are training like athletes. Business is a sport. In some ways, it's more demanding than conventional sports because like you were saying, Desi, it's 24 hours and you have to deal with challenges and it, it, it's a physical and it's a mental game. And the other thing that you were saying, which I completely agree on, I would say the single most important thing that I did uh, here as the CEO of Woolco during the, this year that we had was I never allowed any negativity or defeatism to permeate this company. I was constantly seeking out where the opportunities were and then doing everything I could to inspire people here to get after them. And we did, and and now I say, thank God, we're reaping the benefits. But if you don't have the proper mindset and you don't have the proper energy level, it's like anything else, right? If you want to be a leader, the first person you have to lead is yourself, right? And how do you lead yourself? But with your daily disciplines and actions. But I completely agree with you. I think, you know, we're in the service business as well. And I think when the leader demonstrates, as you were just saying, that we want to put positive vibes out there and really convey that to the community, and the staff and the team believes that you're sincere, they will act the same way. And, and that's when you can really differentiate. If, if, if you don't have that in the hospitality industry, it's tough. What made you, just from a concept-wise, because I, I know you had been successful with a prior concept before Sweetberry Bowls, what was there about acai as a concept that made you feel that this was the, the niche that you wanted to go after and scale? 
Yeah, just seeing the the landscape of it, especially in New Jersey over the past six years, we really took that menu item and turned it into like this trend in, in the tri-state area, you know, and I saw the long-term effects and I said, you know, this could be the next big thing. We always like to look at the trends um, on the West Coast, right? So whatever's trending in like LA, California, Hawaii, at some point it makes its way to the East Coast and comes to New York. So the things that we were we were looking at were acai bowls, poke bowls, right? And you you have to be really cognizant about whether or not it is a trend. Is it, is it, is it going to be sustainable? Is it going to last more than five, 10 years? At this point in the tri-state area, acai has been around for, I don't know, maybe close to a decade now. Let's call it seven, eight, nine years, maybe. It's been in California for on the West Coast for probably two decades. So I think it's here to stay. I really do. Unless consumer demand shifts and changes, which... You know, that, that's what we have to think about if, I'm, if we're thinking about this particular product, right? People always compare this to frozen yogurt. You recall frozen yogurt, you know, decades ago, it was the next hot thing. People thought that it was like super healthy. It was easy to scale and replicate. You didn't have to cook. You just needed machines. Then consumer demand shifted, right? There was a big shift probably in, in the 90s or early 2000s where people looked at dairy and they said, dairy's not healthy anymore. We should not be drinking milk. Right. And the entire frozen yogurt industry took a took a dive. When I started Sweetberry, these are things I'm thinking about. Like, what's the long term viability of this product? I want to build a company that is international and that's going to stand the test of time and be around for a long time. So in the beginning, it was just acai and smoothies. But probably even before our first year, we added salads, we had wraps and then we just added poke. Those are all items, in my opinion, salads and wraps that are going to be around forever. Poke could be a trend, acai could be a trend, but we're always going to stay innovative and stay true to what, what we are, which is a healthy concept. If my family is any indication, my wife goes to a place, uh, poke bowls, two or three times a week, and my daughter makes and, and loves acai bowls. I think the most, in my opinion, and I'm curious to know your thoughts, I think the most sustainable component of those trends is, and where, where the market's going and it's really accelerating, is fresh, health. And not 100%, but as much plant-based as possible. Those seem to be accelerating trends. And I think your concept is is in some way and to some degree integrated with all of them. Yeah. I mean, I, I constantly look at all this stuff. Healthy eating is here to stay, a thousand percent. I mean, data shows, research shows, and, and just, you know, you look anywhere, people will pay more for healthy food. And this is a good thing, finally. You know, I, I feel like the United States is like the worst place in the world in terms of like healthy eating. You mm-hmm. know, what we eat, the fast food, what's in our what's in our food, it's not good. The serving sizes, right? You go internationally, you go to Europe, you know, they don't have large serving sizes. A lot of stuff is organic. There's not it's not processed. So this entire shift, especially what's happening right now in, in the US, is it's important. It's it's significant that people are looking at food differently. They're aware and they want to eat healthier, which is great. Another thing, big thing that, that we've been seeing over the past several years is uh, plant-based options. It's something that I've been following. It's not just people that are switching their diets to vegan or, or becoming vegetarian. It's like a normal person like you and I that are now switching up and, and are eating a plant-based option instead of eating meat maybe several times a week, which is pretty cool. We have a lot of plant-based options on our menu. And I'm, I'm a big supporter of like long-term sustainability, right? I think the world has to eat a lot more non-meat options because there's not enough meat to feed everybody in the world right now. Absolutely. Not to mention the 
impact that factory farming has on on the environment, even to accommodate what we have. I I completely agree with you. I mean, I I'm not a, a vegan, and I'm not even someone that's like I, I eat healthy, and I try to do things that are in alignment with my fitness and health goals, but just through evolution and not even it being any difficult, I would say 90 to 95% of my meals are plant-based now and you don't feel like you're missing anything. And I think you're right. This is something that's, you know, really accelerating in the United States and um, is absolutely here to stay. Let me ask you this question. One of the, the ideas or a dynamic that's in its early stages, but I think is going to accelerate is the use of, of ghost kitchens, virtual kitchens. We're all aware of those. But where I think that that concept has a real opportunity to be a, a revenue driver and, and a moneymaker for restaurants is those restaurants that have brick-and-mortar establishments that are profitable and they're doing well, if they can leverage their existing kitchen to have virtual menus that accommodate offerings to the communities that they serve that don't have that particular cuisine or offering, so my question is, have you ever thought about Sweetberry Bowls being a virtual concept that could be deployed from certain establishments? So if it's a restaurant that has something going on, but there's no acai or smoothie offerings in that community, they could deploy that concept. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is a subject that I like to talk about because um, delivery and tech is kind of like my bread and butter. And I actually speak at a lot of restaurant conferences about this. I, I, I've been talking about ghost kitchens almost two years ago, exactly two years, years ago at this point when they started popping up. Ghost kitchens, also known as cloud kitchens, dark kitchens, virtual kitchens. There's several models, right? So if you're a restaurant operator, there's several things that you can look at. Me as a brand, right? We're Sweetberry. We have brick and mortar. I would love to expand my brand, like you said, into virtual, in, into host kitchens, right? Let's say Steve's Pizza Shack or Steve's Pizza Shop in, in Jersey City. You can bring on Sweetberry, as a virtual concept, listed on DoorDash, Grubhub, Uber Eats, so it looks like Sweetberry's there. And when the orders come in, your restaurant fulfills my orders. You make revenue. The customers in the area get, get Sweetberry products, acai and smoothies, and, and everybody wins. So that's actually a concept that, that we're uh, working on right now. Actually, our first host kitchen is going to be a mutual friend of ours, uh, Lloyd at Bananas. Um, mm. He's going to be onboarding with us in the next 30 days, and we're very, very excited about that. I'm actually expanding overseas too. I don't know if, if we discussed that last time. I partnered with a large, large ghost kitchen operator, the biggest one in the world, actually. They're based in in, in Dubai in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. We're going live with them next month, actually, which is very exciting. We'll be in five kitchens in, in the Middle East, you know, listed on their delivery platforms. And their staff has about 180 brands under management, which is nuts. They have these gigantic kitchens and all the orders come in. Yep. You know, they have brands like like Nathan's. So for us, from an expansion uh, point, doing these deals where we can go into different states and to basically have an, a, an operator fulfill our orders and even going to internationally, I love that because also our, our items are very easy to make. You don't need to cook. Exactly. And it goes to show the power of brand as well, because I, I've been talking about ghost kitchens as well. And I there's a, a restaurant here in Jersey City, uh, Ghost Truck Kitchen. Very, mm -hmm. very smart guy. And he was on the podcast. Andrew, right? Andrew, Andrew DiMartino. So it's a fascinating subject. But from from the way I've analyzed it, I love the concept, as you were calling, of host kitchens. I love it for the people who have the brand, such as you. I love it for the operator who already has a successful brick and mortar and can now generate additional revenue without taking on fixed costs. 
What I think is going to be a problem for a lot of people are people who think, you know what, I make the best whatever cuisine it is, but rather than starting up with all the expense of a restaurant, I'm just going to open up a ghost kitchen. I don't know how successful those are going to be in the majority of instances because now you're completely dependent upon third-party delivery platforms. And what you were just sort of about to to get to, Desi, was these third-party platforms, once they have enough sort of control in a given market, enough data, they'll open up their own industrial kitchens and offer 50 concepts. So that it's almost like if you're completely relying on them as the producer of the product, you need to be very careful because these can switch from being your sort of service provider to your competitor in an instant. Right, right. It's dangerous waters that, that, we're, <laughs> that we're navigating as restaurant operators. And this is something that that's not new. This has been around since third-party delivery has existed, right? Uber Eats, DoorDash, Grubhub, Postmates, these are the large players. I think Uber Eats just acquired Postmates. There's been a lot of consolidation and mergers in the past year, right? These big companies kept getting bigger. They keep eating up the smaller delivery companies and they control the markets. It's a good and bad thing. When you list your, your your brand on Uber Eats, DoorDash, Grubhub, they have millions of users, right? So when you list online, you're tapping into that user base that you would not have access to. Orders start magically coming in. That's the beauty of it. That's what, that's what I love about it. There's pros and cons for everything, right? They have really great marketing, right? So if you, if you understand how to use their, their self-marketing systems, you can generate revenue. But you have to keep it profitable. That's that's the other side of it, right? They take 30%. You need to increase your prices. You need to understand the economics. It's unlikely that Uber Eats is going to go and open up a, a brick-and-mortar restaurant to compete with everybody that's delivering, that's using their platform for delivery. What they will do and what they are already doing where they can is build industrial kitchens, throw up a bunch of virtual brands and compete there. So I think it's very important for restaurants that want to make the most money and and have the most defense, you got to have at least that brick and mortar presence because then you can leverage it. Without that, it can work, but the odds are then really stacked against you. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's really interesting with what's happening in, in the shift of off-premise dining, right? So prior to COVID, off-premise, which is everything that happens outside the, the dining room, right? It was almost over 55%, I believe. So that's counting delivery, pickup, curbside, drive-through, catering, you name it. So what that meant prior to COVID was that only 45% of consumers are actually going into the restaurant and sitting down to eat or going inside, which, you know, it's pretty crazy. Now, because of COVID, that number is is completely lopsided. I mean, it's probably like 25 to 30%, maybe less, right? So the entire dynamics of, of being a restaurant operator and how you get your food to your consumer has completely shifted. You have to get it to where they are right now. A lot of people are quarantining, they're not going out, they're staying at home. So you, ha- you have to be on delivery to kind of survive right now, which is, you know, this is why I call the third parties a, a necessary evil. You have to understand how to be on there. It's 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 way different than owning and operating a brick and mortar, right? It's kind of like you have an e-commerce business, you have a listing online. I, I agree with you. And I think from a competitive sort of viewpoint, because we had on uh, Home Freight, Ian, phenomenal restaurant, phenomenal concept. And he's exceptional at utilizing these platforms and understanding how to utilize them. And that's a real skill set that you, you, you were mentioning before, Desi, as well. If you're going to have these tools, you have to fully understand what the impact is to your bottom line and how to use them rather than just sort of assuming, hey, this is great. I'm getting these orders and then find out that you're losing money on every delivery, you know, two months into it. 
Yeah, I, you know, I think there needs to be more transparency with the delivery platforms in terms of like the data as well, too. They don't even give you the customer data on a lot of the platforms, which is, you know, kind of absurd. They're keeping the data. They know what people are buying. I don't see them as big as a, a threat of becoming the, the the food operator, creating food and, and distributing. You know, they, they are the distribution channel. They own they own the logistics. They own the cars, right? They built the infrastructure. So as they grow, think about this there's more and more drivers on the road, right? Those drivers also work for other companies. They work for Uber, DoorDash. They might work for Uber just for taxi, right? As this grows, there's there's a bigger and bigger infrastructure of drivers that are on the road. What that means for us as a consumer is the food gets to you faster and faster and faster, which means that the consumer wants that convenience at the click of a button and they want their food to get to their house very fast. So you as the operator, you need to be in the game of like, you know, being being efficient, making sure that the consumer is happy from, you know, the, the start point of getting the order to when they get it. You know, I think that there's so many restaurants and concepts out there that for a third party like a, a Grubhub or DoorDash to try to tap in and take over and basically outsource you as a concept, it would be an extremely difficult task. Not to say that they're not doing that or, or they're not trying, which they are. I don't think it would be a binary thing. I agree with you. I don't think it's something where they're, first of all, it's not in their interests to completely decimate every restaurant. They need the restaurants mm-hmm. for their underlying business. But I think where there are pockets of opportunity, they might do that. I, I don't think it's the overarching concern that restaurants have, but I do think that, you know, just what you were saying in terms of their unwillingness to share data, that's a big red flag that every restaurant should understand. Why do they, what is their purpose and having it, but I agree with you. I don't think it's particularly helpful to to, to look at the the situation, the dynamic, whatever. As oh, I have to worry about Uber Eats as a competitor. I think the more significant question is, if I'm going to go into business in whatever iteration, what do I need to know and what do I need to do to make sure I'm profitable? I would also say that there's a lot of movement afoot right now in Jersey City, in Hoboken, and in communities around America to come up with a solution to these third-party companies. And I think if there are geographic areas where independent restaurants can work together, because you and I both know, Desi, delivering food is not a revolutionary concept. They were doing it when I was a kid 40 years ago. What's changed is the ability to have multiple types of cuisine, the utilization of an app, perhaps the speed, the payment. I think there's a lot of pushback, and it's going to be interesting to see what changes within a, on a community-by-community community basis going forward. It may not be a national solution, but it wouldn't surprise me if Hoboken or Jersey City or Tribeca could create a micro-solution to this problem. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's a great, great solution. And I think every city, every micro-environment, you're going to see those smaller delivery companies, for sure. If you're an entrepreneur and, and you're living in, in Hoboken, I think it would be genius to come up with a smaller delivery service if you can make the economics work. That's that's the trick here. Can you make it profitable? Can you compete against the big guys that have, you know, billions in capital and CapEx and and venture capital money? One thing I want to point out though, which I'm seeing, which which I think is very smart, is that there are a lot of third-party online ordering platforms, right? And they don't have their own delivery drivers. Uh, what they'll do is they'll partner or they'll integrate with like a DoorDash to fulfill the driver. So that's that's exactly what we do. We, we have a Sweetberry app and our customers can order online. They can order for delivery now. And what happens is when you click delivery, we have an integration and a partnership with DoorDash. So the DoorDash driver just comes, picks it up and I pay DoorDash a flat fee. 
which I love that model because I don't have to inflate my prices to pay them the 30% commission. My $10 bowl is $10 bowl, it's $10, not $15 like it is on DoorDash. So the consumer wins because they're paying less for the product. Um, they're paying a small delivery fee, right? And I keep all the data and the customer's buying directly from me. So I'm seeing a lot of that now where there's so many online ordering platforms and software, especially because of COVID. I, you know, I, I think this expedited technology and restaurant for five years. You know, we're seeing a lot of oh, uh, no doubt. We're seeing a lot of innovation right now, which is fantastic. And what DoorDash and Grubhub and Uber Eats have to do is they have to integrate with these online platforms instead of competing. And they're doing that, which I think is smart. I think that's good for everybody. So, in essence, you're trying to take away a little bit from the third party. But I think if you're a smart restaurant operator, you still have to be on them. There's a lot of money on the table there. That you know, if you're not accessing that pool of millions of users on there. You need to be accessing that, but also you want to have your own own way of fulfilling orders through your own platform that you can control. Absolutely. And what I like about what you're doing, and I did a podcast episode about this a while ago. The fact of the matter is, is as you were talking about the acceleration of technology, there's never been a time in recent history where it's easier and more conducive for independent operators to gain parity with certain chains. And the biggest tool to achieve that objective is a mobile app. Because, for example, because of my kids and convenience, sometimes we'll order up Chipotle and we pick it up or you get Starbucks, you use their app. It's seamless. It's easy. You get reward points. It's a very elegant, easy to use uh, tool and, and everything works out nicely. There's absolutely no reason why independent restaurants can't avail themselves. Now, obviously, you, you may not have the same level of curated sophistication that Starbucks does, but there are a lot of apps that you can get and integrate into your system. And if you use them and you use them properly, well, now all of a sudden, for example, there's a local Mexican restaurant whose cuisine I think is far better than Chipotle, but because I don't have the convenience and the ease of ordering from them when I've got to pick stuff up and do stuff, I don't get it from them. That's just one example of where I think the technology if used by the independents properly, will help narrow the gap in those markets where they're concerned about the incursion of chains. I, I totally agree, and and in essence too, it's it's sometimes it is more difficult, right? So I don't think we're you know we're not a big chain. We we have like less than twenty restaurants, right? And right. we probably have over eighty thousand users on our on our app, which is great. But you're also competing for phone space if you think about it. So you know somebody that needs to, that wants and needs to download my Sweetberry app. It's another app on their phone. And they have to think about when they want to eat, hey, do, do I pull up Sweetberry? Do I pull up Starbucks, Chipotle, Uber Eats, DoorDash? It's, you know, there's a lot to think about there. So, you know, that's something that that you want to think about as you roll out a strategy. How do you get your customers to download your app and constantly get on there and compete with the other platforms? But if you can do it properly, it pays a lot of dividends. No, you're right. And I think it's sort of going back to what you're talking about, which I completely agree with, which is now there are so many tools you want to maximize the optionality that's available to you. Have the app, but that doesn't mean it. Nothing here should be binary. Just because you have your own app. I mean, Chipotle, you can get through Uber Eats. So if, you, if you're if you so inclined, create and market and try to get utilization of your own app, but don't deny yourself of the benefits of the third parties, but make sure that you're utilizing every resource at your advantage the way you are and the way that they could as well if they thought about it so that the third parties work for you and it's not simply... A problem. This has been a really enjoyable conversation. I do have one question I want to ask, which is the following. You've started two 
substantial chains and businesses and you were involved in other businesses. If you were to offer some key advice or a mistake to avoid or some really important bit of information to someone who's thinking of starting their own business, regardless of the space, what would you say the most important or, or one of the most, because obviously, you know, it may not come to you right now, but what is one of the most important foundational skills or ideas or beliefs that you have to get right from the beginning? That's a good question. If this is geared specifically for first-time entrepreneurs, first-time business owners, I come across this a lot. and A lot of people ask me this question. Like we talked about before, you can learn business, you can learn entrepreneurship. I don't think you necessarily have to be born one. You learned, I learned. You know, I'm I'm just a normal person, just like anybody else. And, and I was able to learn and, and work very hard. For somebody that's thinking about that, if you have a business idea, I always tell people that there's two things here. One, don't let it just be an idea. Ideas are, are a dime a dozen. Everyone can have an idea, right? Execute on it. Bring it to life. That is the most beautiful thing about being an entrepreneur is that we have ideas in our head and we have the skill set to bring it to life. Now, that's something that a new entrepreneur needs to learn. They don't know how to do that, which is fine. That's, that's natural. That's normal. That doesn't mean if you're an entrepreneur and you have a, a, an idea to start a pizza concept, you don't have, you have to go all in, spend all your money, your life savings and, and buy a restaurant. Don't do that. You could do it economically and mitigate your risk and test it. I always tell people, test your idea, test your concept. So you want to become a pizza shop owner, make pizzas, go out and sell it. The best way to validate your product, have somebody pay for it, right? That transaction, you, you just validate your point. That does, again, that doesn't mean you need to go build a restaurant. You can make your own pizzas, maybe sell them online or do a pop-up somewhere at somebody else's space, something like that, where you don't have to really spend a lot of money and have people actually buy your product. And if they buy it, you've proven that you have a viable concept. And I, I think that applies to anything. I think people think that you have to jump all in and just <laughs> go right into it. I don't think that's smart and wise at all, because one, you have to prove that you, again, that you have a business concept. And two, you have to actually see it, you as a business owner or entrepreneur, if this is what you want to do, if you like this, right? I tell a lot of um, aspiring restaurateurs that have never done this, it's so hard. It is so hard to run restaurants, you know, to, to get a real feel for it. Go find a friend and go work with them. Volunteer your time for free. Do it for a week. Do it seven days a week, 10, 10 hours a day. And, and see if this is something that you think you can do for a long, long period of time. I completely agree. And I think also a lot of times people that want to get into business or they're entrepreneurs, I mean, I, I really agree and, and appreciate everything you're saying. Ideas are nothing. It's all about execution. Anybody can have ideas. And the second thing that you say, which I really appreciate, is that so many people want to go into business and they, they're they immediately jumping a million steps ahead to what they perceive success to be. And you have to start small and you have to love those small victories. I mean, we started our brand Holland and York in 2018 with just one product. And I remember the thrill that I got when we started to get customer traction on that one product and then we developed it from there. So just to sort of add to what you're saying, Desi, if this is something that someone wants to do, just start doing it and and don't jump a million steps ahead. And every step you move forward is a great thing. And if you love being an entrepreneur, then celebrate those initial victories. Don't measure them up to some vision you have in your head as to what success should quote unquote be or, or anything like that. I think a lot of people get caught up in that. 
And then they never get anywhere, you know, because they're not really about the grind. They're about an outcome. And the outcome doesn't happen without the process. Right, right. And the, the one thing, and I think we've all felt victim to it. I mean, when I wanted to become an entrepreneur, I never executed. I, I read about it. I studied it. I watched YouTube videos on entrepreneurs I wanted to be like. I would go to like their events and see them speak. And, and those are all fine. Those are all great things. And then there was one day I was like, I'm going to make the jump. I'm, I'm going to try to start my own thing finally. And that took years until I had the, you know, the cojones to, to do it and jump into something. And I'm glad I did. And everybody's different. Everybody has different timelines, but just don't be afraid to do it. And, you know, like we said, you don't have to go all in. You could test it. And, and if it doesn't work out, that's fine. That's normal. If it, if it fails, it's fine. But do it efficiently and try to mitigate your risk. That's awesome. Desi, I really enjoyed this conversation immensely. And for people that want to see what's up at Sweetberry, they can go to Instagram at Sweetberry, or they can follow you guys at Twitter at Sweetberry Bowls. If they want to follow what you're up to, Desi, what's your what's your social media? Yeah, if you guys want to follow me, my, my Twitter's at Desi Saran, D-E-S-I-S-A-R-A-N. My Instagram handle is the same thing, at Desi Saran. Or you can you know feel free to email me, Desi at SweetberryBowls.com. Awesome. Well, this was really great, Desi. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me and I wish you continued success. All right. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation with Desi. There was a lot of value there. One concept that he discussed, which I very much agree with, is that it's great to go to seminars and have mentors and read books and watch YouTube videos. Uh, Education is great. But at the end of the day, you have to take action. And the best way to make sure that your action uh, works in your advantage is first and foremost, it's okay to start small and learn as you go. The second thing is you have to be committed because consistency is so important in anything in life. You've got to be consistent. And as Desi said, you've got to work super hard. So you really want to enjoy what you're doing because the level of work that's required, the level of consistency that's required to really compete is very, very high, and it makes it much easier to do that if you love what you're doing. Uh, I want to say thank you to everybody. I really appreciate all the comments and the DMs, so please keep them coming. You can email me at steven at wilcofoods.com. You can DM me on Instagram at wilcofoods. And most importantly, everybody, have an awesome, awesome day. Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table, fed by Wolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net. <laughs>